Hello, you are about to listen to Richard Chang's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast for free! It's nice, nice, isn't it? There's a lot of work gone into this from a lot of people. Uh, if you would like to contribute something, that would be marvellous. You can buy videos of all of these shows. You'll get 12 in this series for the ridiculous price of £15, or you can get uh, the audios for £6. They are the same as what you're about to hear for free. Uh, but if you want to donate, that would be lovely. Uh, or you can make a, do- a one-off donation or a monthly donation. If you do a monthly donation, that will help us fund future projects. Uh, and um, things like As It Occurs To Me, we're going to try and do, uh, and lots of other stuff on the internet, and I give away loads for free. Is that worth a pound a month to you? I don't know. Go to www.gofasterstripe.com slash rhlstp5, and you'll see all the different ways you can contribute. On that website, you can also buy lots of DVDs. You can also look at my website, richardherring.com, find out where I'm gigging. I will be at the Edinburgh Fringe doing a show called Lord of the Dance Settee, and I'm writing a play called I Killed Rasputin as well. So check those out if you're at the Fringe, or you could come and see We're All Going to Die, which is just in the arse end of its tour, DVD record in May at the Bloomsbury Theatre. Hope you enjoy the show! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Would you please welcome to the stage, Mr. Richard Herring. Can't believe it. Thank you. Hello. You'll never guess who that was. So, can't believe it. Uh, so, um... Uh, welcome to Richard Harry's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast, or as all the cool kids are calling it, Rahel Estepur. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it's very, we've got the, I think we've got like um, the most famous person we've ever had on, uh, on this. I don't know how we've got him. So it's a, and then in the second one, we've got the shortest person we've ever had. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Guinness World Record show. That is, that's what we're working with uh, today. Uh, you're, if you're a regular listener, you will know, or viewer, you will know uh, I'm obsessed with fingers that can travel through time. Uh, and I did get an email, and I'd forgotten to write down who sent the email, so apologies for that. Uh, but, you know, it's not their original thing. It comes from the Bible. This is a bit from, uh, from Daniel 5. Uh, that's the fifth chapter. It's not, the, it's not like sequels. <laughs> the first one was so good. They made five of them. Uh, and uh, it's about King Bel- Belshazzar giving a banquet. And he's drinking wine. And he's ordering gold and silver. He's a very vain man, King Belshazzar, Belshazzar, as I'm sure you're aware. I think he's Nebuchadnezzar's son. Or is that the bloke from Aladdin? Uh, so, <laughs> one of these, it's all the same, right? It's all just made up shit. So it's fine. Uh, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. You can bet that God wasn't happy about that, right? Because he doesn't like false idols. 5-5, five, five, suddenly the fingers of human hand appeared <laughs> and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, which is a nice detail. There's no, it wasn't, if you're looking for it, it was near the lampstand. That's where that probably hasn't moved in the interim. The king watched the hand as it is wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. It's like Aladdin. Uh, the king summoned enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck and will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's nice, you know, nice there's three. Uh, so no one can read it, but then Daniel comes along uh, and he can read it. But I'm thinking if no one could read it, Daniel could just say it meant whatever he wanted it to say. 
Uh, and he, te- he says that Nebuchadnezzar was good and glory and splendor and praise God, but Belshazzar had not humbled himself. That's what it said, this writing. So maybe one of my guests has used his power <laughs> to go back in time to warn. He's an odd person to choose, isn't it? Out of all the people you could warn with writing on a bit of plaster. <laughs> in a, in a, if you're going to do it, go back and learn whatever language you were speaking and then write in that. Don't go and write in English. They're not going to understand that, you idiots. Uh, anyway, uh, we, I, look, I don't want to talk too much because I've got quite, it's quite a good guest. <laughs> so, uh, will you please welcome my guest? He is probably best known as the character Murray Sports in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> that is why, that's why so many people have come along to hear Probably an hour of talk about that. Will you please welcome, I can't believe it, Harry Shearer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Harry Plumbing Shearer. Thank you. <laughs> I, I literally can't believe it. I'm hoping I'll be able to talk to you because I did see you on you the tube. You are talking to me. I hope, well, I'm sort of talking to them. Uh, but... <laughs> I, I saw Harry on, on the tube last year and I uh, was too nervous to go up and talk because I was thinking it can't be really be Harry Shearer on the tube. On the tu- well, a, what's he doing in London? And B, why is he not driving around in a big Rolls Royce made of gold? Uh, so The Rolls Royce made of gold was on the last car of the tube. <laughs> so that when I get off, there it is ready for me. <laughs> that's, good. that's good to know, driving off. So, uh, yes, yeah, so what do you remember about uh, the, uh, the fish that saved Pittsburgh? Because we all re- we all remember it. Of course, it was very all, big here in the UK. Yeah, you might we not all know. remember it uh, with great warmth and affection. I know. Um, yeah, it was shown at the BFI last year, wasn't it? Uh, special evening, two shows. Um, it was a film about basketball. I know you you folks don't know really much about basketball, as we prove every four years at the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> I speak as, some, I speak as someone who tries to find a, a place to play basketball in, in London because I'd like to play it. Anyway, I had a, a friend who was a manager of a of a wonderful a cappella uh, African American singing group called the Persuasions. Uh, amazingly talented guys, and he's it, the way that people do in Hollywood. He suddenly reappears as a producer of a movie. <laughs> And uh, he says, well, I know you like basketball. We're doing this movie about this basketball team in Pittsburgh because uh, it's the only city in America with a, an arena with a dome that opens, and we need that for the, for the plot of the movie, even though they don't have a basketball team. <laughs> but you'll get to play with Dr. J. Dr. Julia Serving was a major player in those days, and, and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, when we're not shooting, you get to hang with them and play with them. I thought, well, that sounds cool. I got nothing better to do than to be in Pittsburgh for a month, a dying industrial city in those days. Think Sheffield on the downslope. <laughs> and uh, so I go to Pittsburgh, and uh, the first day of shooting, I realize it's not really what they promised because every time that we stop a shot, the assistant directors come and collect all the basketballs and put them away because they they have to go back to the prop department. So we never get a chance to play. Um, it's a month in Pittsburgh. And uh, as I told you backstage, it's the first and last movie I ever did where both the producer and the director 
were up all night, every night during the shoot, doing coke. <laughs> they are both dead. <laughs> a little late to a little late to prevent this movie from happening. <laughs> and, um, and it's a month in Pittsburgh. I mean, Pittsburgh at that time really was at the depths of this, you know, uh, Sheffield kind of Birmingham yeah. slew of despond. And uh, so I asked, like, where, where do you go to eat in Pittsburgh? Like, that's a big concept. And he said, well, there's a bunch of Italian restaurants all owned by different members of the Tambellini family. So there's O Tambellinis, there's R Tambellinis, there's M Tambellinis. So I went through the, the entire alphabet of Tambellinis trying to find one that wasn't shit Italian food. But didn't happen. Wow. Would you be interested in being in a film that is about a fish that saves Pittsburgh? Because that would be much better. Would you be in that if I wrote that and produced it? That would be magic. Yeah. That would be just magic. <laughs> the, the plot of the movie, The Fish, is... Uh, and, and then the cast was brilliant. I mean, Jonathan Winters was in this movie. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Jonathan Winters, but he just passed away a couple months ago. Legendary American comedian. Uh, uh, inspired, let's put it that way, Robin Williams. Uh, that is to say, Robin stole everything from Robin. From, um, and just a brilliant, 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 crazy guy. Uh, Stockard Channing was in it. I mean, really wonderful people. Stockard was uh, a, an astrologer who had figured out that the way to save this failing basketball team was to just get rid of all the personnel and hire players who were all Pisces. Okay. <laughs> Hence the fish. How could this not fail? How could it not work? How, did this, how was this not the biggest? I think what you all need is some coke. <laughs> um, but let's talk about some. Well, I, I'm kind of amazed, and it doesn't. You have astounded me for many reasons. A, you travel on the tube. B, you live partly in England. Yes. Uh, no, I live. These, I, I don't live partly. Partly, sometimes. <laughs> all, of, all of my body is here when I'm here. When you're here. I sent my left leg to England. <laughs> and I pointed to my right leg, of course, as you may have noticed. I think, that, I think there might be more than one of you. But you, this seems impossible. But is the, and it is true. You were in a, an Abbott and Costello film. Yes. That is impossible. It is. That is just against the laws of time yes. and space. Especially since I was Abbott. <laughs> Which makes really no sense. Because I was way too young to be either of them. Yeah, I was, I was a, a child actor. Yeah. Uh, I'd gotten into the, the business when I was seven years old. It was like, um, I didn't like the kid thing all that much. I thought that, I thought the child thing was kind of jive, um, you know. Ooh, look at this bright shiny thing, and the little, they have the little sugary things that you can put in your mouth and throw up with. Um, it, none of it really made sense to me. I could see that the adults were having all the fun, and I just couldn't wait to get to that place. And then all of a sudden, at seven years old, this door opens up, and I'm hanging with the hippest, most fun grown-ups on the planet. Sure. You know. Um, and so it was one day of shooting uh, on the Universal Studio lot. Uh, Abbott was not there. Right. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm doing a scene with uh, Luke Costello. And uh, I have one line, which I repeat. So it's, it's the same line, but I'm, it's almost a classic actor's exercise because uh, uh, actors often are told, try to say this one line as many different ways as possible to... to eke out all the possible meanings for it. Yeah. And that's precisely what a like, fucking eight-year-old kid was told to do in this particular day. So 
That's what I did. Yeah. And the line was, but how does a spaceship work? <laughs> <laughs> It's good that you still know it. That is, yeah. That's impressive. That was, that was a version that didn't appear in the movie. <laughs> it's, it was Abbott and Costello go to Mars. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, well, I don't know if people... Abbott and Costello were... Do people remember Abbott and Costello? Because they... Yeah. Because they often don't... My audience... I've got old now, so my audience are often younger than me and don't remember the references. But they were... They massive. don't remember you. They don't know who I am. Yeah. It's lucky you're here. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's why they're here. But it's, it's kind of pretty incredible to... to <laughs> that's, was that your first job to... Uh, no, no, my first job was... I, I broke into show business with uh, Jack Benny. Oh, yes. Who, I don't know if you all know who Jack Benny was, but uh, he was, uh, at the time really the top of the line of American comedians. Uh, he was regarded as the classiest, uh, the most uh, the most supreme uh, practitioner of the art in terms of his craft. And, and part of why he was regarded as so great is because uh, a lot of comedians focus the attention on themselves and want all the laughs to come from themselves. And he was a great reactor. So he surrounded himself. <laughs> Mr. Benny, you're alive! <laughs> so he surrounded himself with funny people. Yeah. They got laughs, and then he got laugh. He got the next laugh by reacting to them. Uh, so it was a very f enjoyable place to work because everybody was getting laughs. It was not like laughs were being stolen from you, which is sort of common in, in, in most comedy situations, as I've learned to my d dismay over the last few years. But it was just this wonderful situation. Very, the smartest person that I've ever met in comedy uh, really understood it in an incredibly instinctive way. Yeah. His timing was impeccable. And very, very clever in the sense that as he grew older, he, he was always about using pauses and using silences and, and you know as the jazz guys say playing the playing the the silences between the notes um and in his late 70s and 80s he would go on the johnny carson show which was the big chat show in america in those days and he would start to tell a story to johnny and <laughs> he'd take these incredible pauses now and you thought as you were watching him, holy fuck, this is the night that he has the stroke. <laughs> and he'd turn it on you. He, he absolutely just manipulated that and then came out with this brilliant punchline, but he put you through that at the end, so the laugh was so much greater because it was not only about being funny, but holy Christ, he didn't have a stroke. I'm so <laughs> relieved. So it was he was really smart. He was really brilliant yeah. and a lovely guy and, and really lovely to me. I worked for him for eight years. All right. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you also around that time knew Mel Blanc, who's the um, uh, voice of Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. And uh, more excitingly, Tweaky from Buck Rogers. I don't know about that. Yeah, I believe but, so. That's why I've been informed. <laughs> that guy, I think, you know, the, but he was, Buck Rogers in the, the voice of Porky Pig. Yeah. Voice of Sylvester the Cat. As, not as good as Tweaky. Tweaky. Beep, 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 beep. I can do all the impressions. Apparently. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, he was one of the cast members of the Jack Benny program. Right. And he had a, a, a son who was the same age as I was. So he took, and I'm not speaking in a Catholic, 
priest sense. He took a fatherly interest in me. I was under no garment. So were you doing voices then? Is that no, 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 no. There was nothing. There was, you know. I look at my life so far, and I think, well, somebody from the outside would say, oh, God, he started with Mel Blanc, who was the, the voice of all these characters in Looney Tunes, and he ends up doing these voices on The Simpsons. Yeah. There's sort of a straight line between them, and he must have learned how to do that from Mel Blanc. We never talked about that. Um, that wasn't even something that came up. We were on the Jack Benny program. That was, like, big time. Yeah. Um, and the twists and turns are so much more interesting than the fact that I started here and so far I'm, yeah. I'm here. Okay, we'll find out about those as we go on, hopefully. So, um, I, I, mean, I think what is extraordinary about seeing you on the tube, I think, which I did, I did write about this, <laughs> but what was, what's amazing is that you are... I didn't spit on the tube. You didn't? No. You were good. You were very, you were very you. smartly dressed. It was summer, you were wearing a nice, uh, you know, very casual, but very smart. <laughs> but what's amazing is you're standing on the tube and really you are... In the English-speaking world, one of the most famous voices, certainly, in the, in the English... Probably everyone in the English-speaking world has heard your voice. Mm -hmm. And yet you can stand on the tube, and I was the only person, I believe, unless everyone else was being as pathetic and childish and nervous as I was, <laughs> that recognised who you were. So that's... That, is it kind of amazing to be that famous and that anonymous at the same time? Well, you were the only one who clung to my leg. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that sense, you're right. Um, no, I mean, I... I realized, because I was in show business as a child uh, and had a lot of time to think about it when I came back in as a grown-up because I left, um, I realized that fame is worth only one thing, really. Um, if you can get to do what you want to do, yeah. that's a use of... Otherwise, it's crap. Uh, so I've, got, I've gotten the most... Uh, kind of desirable form of fame in the sense that every once in a while I can get to do with what I want to do but I still get to live a fairly normal life and yeah. go about my business and I don't have to have a phalanx of security people well I, I brought them tonight just, <laughs> just to impress you but I mean my wife and I were at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago and um, we were in a, a box a friend of ours has a box there and about the third quarter of the game in comes Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie because they were friends of the, the friend of ours who had the box. And so when we're leaving, very much unlike when we came in, <laughs> we're surrounded by Brad Pitt's security and Angelina Jolie's security. And it's at least 12 to 15 guys, you know, so it's walking like a centipede, a centipede <laughs> to the elevator, yeah. you know, and, and moving in this in this very bizarre way and you're totally cut off from anything except that and then we get down to the bottom and we face another phalanx of 12 to 15 people because Adam Sandler was at the game and it was, his phalanx was faced off against Brad Pitt's phalanx for who was going to get out the door first and realized that's not a way to live no well and also you don't have to pay all those people so think Correct. of the money you're saving there you know, most, think of it yeah, yeah most celebrities have to spend all their money on oh my god yeah. on the security and people don't think about that when they hear about you know the money that celebrities yeah oh <laughs> I made myself sad just thinking about it but the phalanx <laughs> I like the phalanx um I mean, you've sort of been in every American institution, really. I mean, a lot of these things are... Excuse me, I have not been no, in... No, no, no. 
Rikers Island I haven't been in Alcatraz I haven't been in didn't you escape from Alcatraz I thought yeah. I've got my I've been misinformed no. but you were, you, were, you were in the pilot of Leave It to the Beaver Leave It to Beaver which is uh, doesn't really mean much to us it's like didn't get, mean much to me no. <laughs> but you didn't you, did, you didn't do the series so you, I didn't do the series no. was, there, was there a reason you didn't want, didn't want yeah, to yeah I was I was working as a child actor but I was I was doing it occasionally Jack Benny would call and I'd go and do that or I'd get uh, other gigs but this would have meant being in a series on a weekly basis, full-time job, and my parents um, liked the idea that I was in what we call public school, which means state school, and um, not having me, they said, if you, if you do this show, we'll have to pull you out of school and put you in this special Hollywood school, and we don't think that's right, and yeah. we'd rather have you grow up normal, <laughs> like I did. Um, so that was pretty yeah. much why I didn't do that. But then you also were in Saturday Night Live, which again doesn't mean that much to people here, but it is kind of an amazing. I mean, it, does, it doesn't mean as much as it does in America. We don't, we don't get it over here, but it's. Uh, I mean, we don't I, see we, the program. I see it over there. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's. Oh, anyway, we're back. Uh, but this is quite interesting, and I think this, uh, there's, a, there's a quote here from uh, Dick Eberson. 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 Who. Um, uh, you worked with on... Uh, no, not with. Well, he was, he was the producer, yeah. Uh, and I think this says more about him and says a lot of good about you, though. It's quite a negative quote from his perspective. <laughs> a, a gifted performer, but a pain in the butt. <laughs> He's just so demanding on the preciseness of things, which I would have picked him up on. Uh, <laughs> And he's very, very bad on working people. He's just a nightmare to deal with person. I, for me, that immediately says, that guy's a dick and you're working hard trying to do what you want to do and annoying him because he's going, look, we're trying to get this show out. Stop trying to make it good. Um, there was a sketch, not in his season. I was, I was there twice. That's how stupid I am. Um, and the first season, uh, I wrote a sketch for... Uh, a friend who was hosting the show uh, called Howard Hessman, who was in a series called WKRP in Cincinnati. Right. And they were plugging the fact that they were moving to a new evening. That's why he was hosting the show, because that's why people host this show, is to plug shit. <laughs> um, and, but Howard happened to be funny, and I wrote this sketch, and it, it was like, I'm a DJ on a morning radio show, and Howard is there to talk to me about his thing. And I can't be bothered with him because I've got all this stuff that I've got to do, traffic and weather and things and music and commercials and stuff. And I, I reprised kind of that idea in uh, Wayne's World two years later. And I come to the set, and we don't get, that show is not rehearsed. There's just what's called camera blocking where they decide where the cameras are going to be and then you do the show. So we're doing camera blocking and I come to the stage and I see what they've set up as a radio set. And there's a microphone sitting on a table like this. And I say, guys, people in radio put their elbows on the table. On the, they put stuff on the table. They put coffee cups on the table. Mics are hanging. They don't sit. They hang. We were in a building with four radio stations, two stories <laughs> above us in the elevator. All you had to do was take a, a, an elevator ride two floors up, and you could see... For the rest of the week, whenever there was a delay in anything, it was like, oh, we're trying to get Harry's microphone. That's what that was like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, 
Dick's, uh, <laughs> Dick's son was killed in a tragic plane crash a few years ago. No, nothing. <laughs> I don't have magical powers, I'm just... I, <laughs> You said, uh, you said of him we had creative differences, I was creative, they were different. <laughs> yeah, that, that, um, they call, uh, I left at 1.43 in the morning, January 13th, 1985. I just said, this is, you know, we've, we've had enough of this. And um, I was getting the hell out of New York and I got a phone call Monday morning from the Associated Press and they said, we hear that you're leaving the show and you're having, you had creative differences. And I just blurted that out. <laughs> and uh, it's one of like the two, three blurts that I've had in my life where I thought, you know, it's so much better than thinking up stuff in advance if you <laughs> blurt stuff like that out. Well, talking of that then, that is what surely happened with Spinal Tap, which was an improvised... All blurt. All blurt. Yeah. <laughs> but, they're, they're, but again, those things were, um, if they weren't scripted, the lines in that film all, all are astonishing. Yeah. So, was the, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a, it's a film that I think has completely redefined comedy for the next, well, for, since then till now. In the, you wouldn't have The Office, you wouldn't have anything really, anything by all the Armando Nucci stuff and Stuart Lee stuff and everything here in the UK is very influenced by it. And my Not stuff. only in the UK, I mean, uh, uh, American shows like Parks and Rec yeah. uh, all have adopted basically the camera techniques of that movie, if not anything else about it. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think to the point where it's just lost any meaning at this point. I mean, we had a character in Spinal Tap, Marty DeBerge, who was making the film. Yeah. So you knew why this thing was being made in that way. I have no idea who's making the documentary in Parks and Recreation, well, yeah. <laughs> or why it goes on for four seasons. <laughs> well, they don't see, it is quite interesting with those sitcoms, because they don't care, I mean, it's a device that they don't care about, because you'll go, well, when's this gonna go out? Because yeah. when, when the other people in the office see this, they're gonna yeah. be really no, pissed I mean, off about. We were so, absolutely persnickety about yeah. the reality of that premise and what would and wouldn't be seen and what would and wouldn't be, you know, all of that stuff. And, and we're, we're giving everybody grief about it uh, because we want it to be right. And so I see, you know, we've influenced people stylistically, but not in terms of, I mean, I thought Ricky uh, in the office did a, a great job and I was stunned when I found out that that was all written and not improvised. I right. mean, that's just phenomenal work. But I think beyond that, it's sort of kind of uh, devolved in a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny, I was watching an episode of The American Office just uh, today, Ooh. I think, uh, and, uh, and there was a bit where Michael Scott got left at a, uh, a garage and Jim had to drive off. And A, suddenly there would be two cameras when there would only been one before, but B, you're going, why doesn't the bloke with the camera help Michael Scott get, get, get a lift back to the office? Well, and you so know, it, kind of does, it doesn't make sense in, in that way. And I was watching an episode on the plane where I wasn't listening, but I just saw it on the screen, you know, uh, on, the, on the teeny little screens. And uh, I, th I realized it's now become a style and beyond a style a cliche because every shot began with what they call in the business a whip pan where the camera's, oh, he's over here. <laughs> and you just go, well, wait a minute. The law of averages tells you that in a, in a real documentary, one time out of 10, the cameraman's <laughs> gonna be on the guy who's talking when he starts talking. It's not gonna be a whip pan, oh, he's talking now. Uh, it's, it just, 
But they do it, I realized, as an injection of energy. American television is all about energy. And anything they can do to inject energy into it, and, and that, that yeah. cliche is now a way of injecting visual energy. When you're on a show and you, you watch these, these hosts who come on, and I've seen it a, a, a dozen times, it's a great aid to me because people who go on television in America come on uh, with some talent and some individual thing about them, and then they end up being homogenized by the machine. And part of the machine is people in their ears talking all the time saying, more energy, more energy, up, 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 up. And then they become caricatures of themselves and it saves me all the trouble. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I've watched Spinal Tap a lot. We, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a film that I think lots of bands watch, but I think comedians watch as well. So when I was on tour with Stuart Lee and Kevin Eldon, we would, the actor Kevin Eldon, we would, um, we would, uh, we, sorry, don't worry about that, Harry. Uh, uh, we, had a video, we had a video, and we w probably watched that, you know, at least three or four times on the tour, and it's all the Hello Cleveland thing, mm. we'd be doing that backstage, and once we were at the Reading Hexagon, and we drove up, and there were some girls standing there, and, we went, and we, they, we, when that happened, it was usually for Westlife or something, we were in the, we were in the but we were going, oh, here they come, here they come, but then they were actually for us, so that, that ruined that joke, uh, and kind of surprised us. But I think what's, um, what's sort of amazing about it, and probably the apps, the... the when you watch all the outtakes of it, all the extra stuff, not outtakes, the stuff that you shot that wasn't in the film, it, they're all as good as the stuff in the film. And the genius of the film, I think, is someone going, let's make this 80 minutes long. Let's not make this 120 minutes long. Let's throw away loads of brilliant stuff. Well, I mean, the thing about making any um, film, I think, is, uh, or, or any, any piece of any length, is you have to be willing to kill the ones you love. Yeah. Um, and we were all involved in, in that process right. in Spinal Tap, and we all s sat there and watched these great pieces and just thought, this is stopping, this is stopping the flow of the movie. Yeah. And uh, as great as they are, that's why God invented DVD extras. You know? <laughs> it is, yeah, well, it's fortuitous for us yeah. later to be able to get, yeah. to get all of that stuff. And you, and you work together. I mean, you were saying backstage that you're stubborn, and which I think is that, that that's what's kept you going for, throughout your career, sort mm -hmm. of stubbornness. Mm -hmm. But then it is that you need that belief and that stubbornness to create something well, like I mean, this. Because that's what's... That's, it's, we walked into every Hollywood studio with a 20-minute demo, which you may have seen, it's on online, of the film, which has seven of the songs and Stonehenge and a couple yeah. of the other major gags in the film. And we would sit with these Hollywood executives and the lights would go down and they'd watch the set 20 minutes and the lights would come up and they were like, well, what would that be then? <laughs> well, that would be a major, that would be a feature-length motion picture, so. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they just, had no, you know, conception of it. If they did get what we were talking about, they said, well, rock and roll movies don't make any money. Okay, that's, you know, so, yeah, it, it took huge stubbornness to just yeah. get the film made in the first place. The head of the st studio, which went bankrupt six months after we came out, um, <laughs> hated the movie and said to us, if the first two critics who see it don't like it, it's never coming out. So, I mean, it was just pushing this huge rock uphill yeah. forever and ever and ever, you know. And then I have to say, one of the, you don't get this often in show business. Um, so when it comes, you have to cherish it. The same fuckheads who said no to us when we wanted to make the movie 
were running after us 10 years later <laughs> saying, here's some money, make a sequel. And we got to say no to them. Right. <laughs> Good. Um, my, Chris Evans, not that one, who uh, directs the... Um, Directs the show and his runs go faster. Stripe said he saw Spinal Tap um, on one of your one of one of your tours, the live tours at the Albert Hall. Oh yeah, that's where I met my wife. Oh, is it right? Yes. Well, that's that's very doubly interesting because he says he remembers a bit and he's seen the film of it. And it's not in the on the video of it. And it's not in the video of it where you fell over onto the edge of the stage onto your testicles, <laughs> and he said it looked very real and it looked like you were hobbling around. Was that did that really happen or was that a joke or has he just made it up in his? Do you remember? You would remember that, Harry. You don't have to. Do you remember the time you fell onto your nuts? It was just. It was when you met your wife. That's why you can't have sex with each other. Do you remember? Chris, you saw my testicles. No, I, I don't remember it. Don't remember it. Um, no, he's I. He's probably maced, you know. He's, no, on, I'll he's tell on coke all, all, all night long, so he's probably making it. You can make the fish that say Pittsburgh, too. Um, no, what I remember, uh, aside from meeting my wife, my, de- my not then wife, my. Now wife. Um, it would have been weird if she had been your wife It would have been weird. <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to your wife. I don't know if you realized you're married. Um, where's that? Where'd you get that ring? You bought it for me. I have no idea. Um, I'm here on the stage, except it's Royal Albert Hall, not the fucking Leicester Square Theater. But I'm about here. And I'm going off stage because I'm, we're going to do a song called Christmas with the Devil. And I, uh, this was a big money show, so I was going off to have a tail attached to me. I had a, like a, a prehensile tail that I could actually waggle around. So as I'm walking off stage into the wings, standing, no, not standing in the wings, sitting on his haunches in the wings watching the show, give me this as I go by passing him by was George Harrison. I remember that. Not falling on my nuts. <laughs> you be the judge. I will be the judge. And I've actually asked you this question once before because I once sat in an audience and asked you this question uh, when you were in Edinburgh. But I'm going to ask you it again because I can't remember what you said. <laughs> well, we're even because I don't remember you asking the question. No, we won't do. So when in Spinal Tap, one of your most famous moments is when you're in airports, well, Derek Smalls is in airport security with, um, there's good at impressions. Yeah. Can I be on The Simpsons? Yeah. You can be the sound effects. Like, okay, when you're, I'll sit in for you when you're not there. This is Mr. Burns. Excellent. <laughs> if you can't, if you can't, if you can't do it, just I can do that down the phone. I don't even yeah. have to come in. I think down the phone is the only way it works. <laughs> the worse phone, the better. <laughs> so um, maybe an old Nokia. Uh, <laughs> I'll try. I'll give it a try. Um, if you give me that, give me their number, and I'll give them a <laughs> ring. Uh, <laughs> and I won't bother them at all. Um, <laughs> But you've got the, uh, the uh, zucchini or the courgette. The down courgette. Your, down Very your good. Um, People sometimes think it's a cucumber. Yeah. It's a courgette. Okay. Uh, and Cucumbers, a uh, little large and a little warty in its <laughs> surface for the desired effect. It is wrapped in tin foil, and that is what has set the airport security off. My question to you is... Why the tin foil? Why is, why is there tin have, foil? And my qu- answer to you at the time, yeah, and my answer to you now, was <laughs> have you ever worn a courgette inside tight leather trousers <laughs> next to your th- sweating thigh? <laughs> you would put it in tin foil too. Yeah. All right. It would, be, it would be courgette mush by the end of the show <laughs> if you didn't. Seriously. <laughs> 
we've had to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I've got another very specific. You spider. don't know much about physics, do you? I don't. Know, I don't really know much about physics. Not of, not of course yet. Yeah. A very specific um, spinal tap based question. Derek Small. Smalls. Smalls. Sorry, Derek Small. I've got another thing about that, but I won't bring it up. There was, there was someone's claiming you nicked it off some record with Derek Small. Derek Smalls, I know that. Uh, I tried to do Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap as my subject on when I did Celebrity Mastermind, and they wouldn't let me do it. What? They said it wasn't a big enough subject to do it. <laughs> Let's get John Humphreys in here right <laughs> he now. Should do. My God, the subject they've had on that show are tinier than moats in a in a they wouldn't let me do fly's that. eye. I wanted you to do the human penis. They wouldn't let me do that. So that's too small. That's too small. Derek Small's too small. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, this is Spinal Tap. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me do that because it's just one film. But then other people have done such tiny, oh my God. tiny subjects. Insanely tiny. Yeah. I, we can't watch, my wife and I can't watch the first half of Mastermind. We have to, <laughs> we have to fast forward to the general knowledge area because otherwise we just get so angry. You've been allowed on as an expert because you know about this <laughs> science fiction comics from the 1950s. There's a specialty. Yeah. No, it is. It's really. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, he's he's wearing a Shrewsbury Town football shirt, but I, he has a West Ham baseball cap. I get the the Shrewsbury Town <laughs> question more than any Do other. You? Yes. <laughs> If they, if they had a fan in the seats for every person who's asked me the question, they'd be a much more successful team. <laughs> I was here in London um, preparing to go on the road with Saxon. Right. Uh, just as prior to us shooting the film, because I wanted to get a few little tips sure. of, of stagecraft. Saxon style. <laughs> and I was walking around London and looking for, you know, wardrobe stuff and anything I could pick up. And uh, I thought, um, this was a time when uh, uh, Elton John had just bought a football team. And I thought, well, that's a, a, an aspiration that Derek would have, but he can't possibly afford a, a premier division team. <laughs> so I was looking for, you know, more obscure teams. Yeah. There was this little little stand somewhere in Piccadilly that had a Shrewsbury Town wow. t-shirt, uh, a jersey. <laughs> and I thought, that's the one. <laughs> how, the, how the baseball cap got attached to that, I don't know. No. But I know why. The, why you I let did. yourself down. It was good research up to there. And then you, for me, the film is ruined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's utter <laughs> shit. I, re I acknowledge that. But... <laughs> Um, well, and interestingly, and the music is so amazing, and the music in it is so good that you can listen to. You know, that's what I think. Again, that shows the detail you've got into. I mean, that the fact that you've gone that far into, into thinking about the character. But the music, the, again, my yeah, cameraman Craig and Chris, the director, used to be in a band, and they opened with, they'd open with tonight. We're going to rock you as their, as their. Really? Yeah. And look where they look, look where they've ended up yeah. now. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's nothing funny about bad music. Um, the the idea for us was we were maintaining as a as a premise in the movie this band had been around for 17 years at that point yeah um you have to even at that level of mediocrity give a certain number of people something that they find satisfying um and it has to be fun to play for us yeah um so the the comedy was in sort of the, the lyrical choices and the topical and the thematic choices that they made, not bad music. You know, bad music is bad music, you know. There's nothing nothing particularly funny about it. Yeah. 
unless unless you're doing bad singing. I mean, there are a couple of people who uh, historically have done singing that's just a bit off. Yeah. And that's really that can be very funny, yeah. but I mean, it's just a whole band playing badly is is pointless. Yeah. Well, to the extent that some people have thought that Spinal Tap are a real band. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Liam Gallagher supposedly. Yes, I've heard. I mean, I know he's he's on a lot of drugs, so I'm yeah. not sure that's a, I'm not sure that's a compliment or not. But it's kind of amazing. Well, he thinks there are 17 planets in the solar system. <laughs> but yes, um, you know um, the. A guy from this, again, this mythical studio that, that released the movie asked us about two months before the film came out, you know, this was way after there was any chance to do anything about this, but so the perfect time to ask this question. <laughs> Guys, don't you think that in the first 30 seconds you have to wink to the audience to let them know you're kidding? <laughs> and we said, no, we don't. And he walked away shaking his head like, what are you going to do with these people? <laughs> Liam Gallagher's going to think that's real yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. And that was who he has proven right. No, I mean, I, we've... If nobody had ever thought that this was a real band, we would have been really disappointed. Yeah. Because uh, we would have realized that people weren't as stupid as we thought they were. Uh, no, but we wanted... There had to be that level of somebody's got to, for five or ten minutes, think this is real before the, the light bulb goes off and the penny drops. Yeah. Um, that was sort of, to us really important. Yeah, cool. Right, I'd better ask you an emergency question because otherwise I'll just ask you, you know, sensible questions and the people won't be happy. <laughs> uh, if you had to choose between having a, I mean, it's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame to ruin it. But last, last week I asked uh, Danny Baker about if he'd ever tried to suck his own cock, and it completely ruined the whole podcast. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Have you? I know. It's, uh... I've never tried to suck Danny no. Baker. <laughs> you don't have to try. He just, no. he just sticks yeah, it's in just there. Um, if you had to choose between having a tit that could dispense talcum powder, I don't know if you have that in America, talcum powder. We have talcum powder. <laughs> oh, we got everything got in America. Tits, we got, got tits. And... We got cocks. We got balls. We got the whole <laughs> deal. It's so all covered. To know. Uh, and a finger that could travel through time. Which of those two, th which of those would you say? You can just put your finger and it can go anywhere in space and time. Uh, but only your finger can go in did I? Did I see you at the last Comic-Con convention? <laughs> this sounds like something that you, you, you yeah. were dressed as one of the characters from Star Trek, right? Uh, I would take the finger. Would you? What, what would yeah. you do with your finger? I'd put it on a tit that could put... <laughs> Yeah, you could just put your finger into a talcum powder factory, and then you could have talcum powder anytime you wanted, couldn't you? That's so. That's a stu You just whenever you want talcum powder, just go go back to 1964 uh, talcum powder factory. Come back from free talcum powder. So it's good point. <laughs> when you were a kid, yeah. <laughs> Was there either too much or not enough talcum powder in your life? <laughs> I don't remember too much. Yeah, talcum I bet you don't. <laughs> I don't know if we had it. Uh, and um, so okay. well, let's let's move. We'll move on to the. Simpsons. We might come back to another emergency question, but we'll move on to the. <laughs> we'll move on to the Simpsons, which some people might be interested in talking about, uh, in hearing you talk about. I think the best voice, the probably your best known uh, in the Simpsons for doing the voice of Hugh Jass. <laughs> that is probably your most famous voice yeah. you've done. Do you remember the voice of I you do just? not remember the voice of you just. I have to say, about uh, half of the voices, uh, 
I, I don't hear enough, and, no. and so I have to be reminded of them yeah. when, I, when I do them on the show. Have you done 100, if I've got, 179 was one of the figures I saw on the, I don't know if that's an up-to-date figure of how many characters you've done on The Simpsons. 4,235,000. <laughs> no, I mean, I, the only thing that I've ever uh, emulated Bob Dylan about, uh, not being the hugest Bob Dylan fan, but I, I have made it a point to answer that question every time with a different number. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, well, I'll ask you something. As I told you before, there are some questions from kids, uh, that, from Welsh children. And, you know, and do, do bear that in mind when they're, A, they're children, and B, they're Welsh. Be the Welsh. So, um, Sam Wright from Wales asks, do you use the words diddly and doodly around the house? <laughs> There's nowhere to top the question. <laughs> I think, do, you, do we have prizes? <laughs> we can give some Sam, prizes. Sam gets a prize for okay, that Okay, good, all right. Um, what is, we asked what, he also asked more, more a, a, a question you can answer. What is your favorite Simpsons episode? Which must be a question you can answer. I have two. Uh, the uh, Three-Eyed Fish. Oh, yes. Mr. Burns runs for governor and the Three-Eyed Fish. It's uh, season three. And season... I think it's either seven or nine. It's an odd number. It's a, it's a single digit. Um, and it's Homer uh, meets the uh, uh, psychedelic, uh, what is he, a, a wolf? No, oh, yes, uh, yeah, the, the peyote, coyote. coyote sorry. Uh, meets the psychedelic coyote played by Johnny Cash. Yes. Which is, I think, still to this day, the most beautiful half hour of animation ever seen on television. I mean, it's really amazing work. Yeah. Uh, the, the first one is, I think, still the most resolutely satirical episode from the series, and the second is the most uh, just uh, aesthetically beautiful. Yeah, well, especially in those early season, seasons, there are some kind of amazing detours into, into doing... You're going to pull a face at me because I'm saying that... <laughs> I'm not being rude. In the early seasons, there are, there are you know, these amazing... Diversions into different kinds of animation and different kind of oh well that's, oh, that's, all kinds that's of stuff that's continued. I mean, there was a, a couple of seasons ago they did a three D animation yeah. uh, show, and God help us, uh, this season we've done a Lego show. Yeah, uh, strangely <laughs> coincidental with the release of the Lego Movie. <laughs> I don't know how this these kind of coincidences happen. They're just nutty, <laughs> and. The release of a line of Simpsons Lego characters. Yeah. How does this happen? <laughs> and uh, you didn't like the episode. I quite like this episode, but the principal and the pauper episode. You didn't. You didn't. Oh, like you mean the one where where twelve years of history of Seymour Skinner is denied? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that we've always, all of us, have been fairly protective of what the audience knows about the characters and writers on the show tend to, you know, the, the, the supply of writers is replenished quite frequently by a, a, a flatbed truck coming across the Mexican border <laughs> with new, right, new, you know, hope to be, hoping to be citizens, you know. Um, and they tend to sometimes regard the characters as sort of playthings. Yeah. And we believe that the audience, one of the things that, the, that happens as a series goes on for a while so that the audience has some kind of investment in what they know about these characters. So to just, uh, after 12 years, to say, oh, what you think you know is bullshit. And here's, <laughs> you know, it's like, and of course, uh, 
in the aftermath, it's it's not me. Uh, that show is is reviled around. The, the, no, I know. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, but not at the time, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but what did? Would you have had any? You didn't have any recourse to go. We we don't want to do this recourse. Show. Yeah. Oh yeah, the law courts. Um, <laughs> The, the, the EU, I think, could have uh, stepped in. <laughs> I flew to Brussels and no, no recourse. I'm no. a hired actor, you know. But that, well, it's kind of interesting because in the pay dispute as well, that you've had a few pay disputes. The pay dispute. A few over the years. <laughs> yes. But in one of the recent ones, you said, I'm happy to take a pay cut right down to 70% if you'll give me a percentage of the profits, profits of the show. Which I'm astonished you don't get. You're astonished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You apparently don't work for Rupert Murdoch much. <laughs> well, I have, I have done that. Yeah. No, yeah, that's true. And yeah. they said there is no salary figure low enough that we would be willing to give you a piece of the profits of the show. Which sort of suggests, because the, the last time they're saying we have to cut your wages because we're not making enough money. By 50%. The, yeah. Yeah. So we're not making enough money. So, oh, well, well, I'll take no money, but give me a percentage of the profits. That we, Oh, no, we can't do that yeah. because we're making too much money. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> so it's it's an odd place to be in. But, yeah, so you don't, you don't, you can, do you not, do you have any, if the script comes, you have to just say what the script is. You can't say, yeah. hey, can we do this? I can say it. Yeah, but they'll just say it. Um, you know, the thing is, it's a monstrously successful show. And anybody who's involved in any kind of show business success um, is, by normal standards, obscenely overpaid. <laughs> That's just the truth. Yeah. But there's another truth, which they, the two coexist. And, and I, I had a shrink once who said, the mark of adulthood is that you can contain two different emotions at the same time about the same thing, you know. Uh, and the other thing that's true is compared to other hit television shows and the cast of other hit television shows, we're highly under... Uh, you can't be highly underpaid. We're seriously underpaid. Yeah. To the, both things are true. But, you know, that's... That's, you know... Yeah. But it does... But the sun's going to die soon, so... <laughs> By soon, I mean four billion years, but... <laughs> we can speed it up. Rupert well, three, three billion nine now. <laughs> well, it's, it's, there's so much about you. I mean, they, if they chose to replace you with someone else doing the same voices, would they be allowed to do that? or do Allowed to? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the very first... You know, the thing that sort of set the table for what we were in for was the very first time our contract expired, and so there was a negotiation, the head of Fox a guy called Peter Roth, who was uh, notorious. He was a big hugger. He'd come <laughs> up to you and say, Richard, how are you? You know, just hug you like you, you know, you, th you think I, I should be wearing four times more cologne than he is just to, just to back him off. Um, said in The New Yorker, uh, we could get people from any high school campus in the country to do these voices. And uh, I said, to whoever would, would write it down, we could get anybody from any high school campus in the country to run the Fox Network, and we have. <laughs> but there you go. But it's you, I mean, you've created those voices and yes. those other, so you've really, even Oh, don't, don't pick at the scab now. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think I'm on your side. With yes, you. I think you are. I would like, I'd like you to be paid more money. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, well, you know, Adam Newman, who has who's given me some quite good information about you, uh, has asked. Uh, he says his favourite uh, character of yours is Scratchy. 
and he was he was wondering if oh, you would do a bit of scratchy. Is that scratchy? T- I can't do scratchy tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask you to do any of the others unless you unless you want it. Uh, but I can't, I can't say anything anymore. <laughs> Although uh, Chris Evans' son Ben Evans, who did uh, get a, a scoop from Stephen Fry by asking, "What's it like being Stephen Fry?" So I, I could ask you, "What's it like uh, being Harry Shearer?" <laughs> I'm going to say the the joke answer that I told you backstage because I I don't want to be in that position. Um, I feel uh, extremely lucky to um, most of the stuff I do is the stuff I want to do and love doing. I do very little that I don't like. Um, I feel understandable frustration because there are things that I want to do that I haven't been allowed to do yet, but I keep trying to manipulate the, the circumstances to get to do them. But um, compared to what this career could have been, what I could have been, first of all, the odds that you can have a career in show business that lasts longer than 10 or 15, it's like an athlete's career. Yeah. You know, it has normally a shelf life, and there are very few people who can go beyond it. And I've, I, I did think about it when I was in my 20s when I came back into show business, and I thought... Um, they want to categorize you. They want to uh, uh, put you in a box and say, this is what you do, and you do it for a while. And they said, let's get a young one of him, of yeah. him, and then that's the end of it. So the, the strategy that I devised was be a moving target, do different stuff, not allow myself to be sort of typified and typecast in that way. The downside of it was that it took a long, 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 long time for me to achieve fame and any degree of, of uh, financial success. But the upside is that I've had a career that way outlasts most show business careers. So yeah, I feel luck is a huge part of it, but I did do some thinking about it. Yeah. So Well, it seems you're, st- I mean, you're still working incredibly hard. I mean, lots and lots of different arenas. I mean, you know, you've got the success that you know, other people might have said, well, I'm doing this, I'm going to sit back and... But you seem to be working fastidiously, completely, you know, you're doing the Richard Nixon thing, but you also do lots of music, you do your Le Show, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're out there putting out lots and lots of different things in different media. Uh, I do this because this is what I love. Yeah. You know, um, I did it when I was making no money. I do it when I'm making some money. I did it now I do it when I'm making more money. Uh, money is not the reason I do it. Um, it's one reason I love New Orleans is because I feel uh, some commonality with people there who play music, not because they're trying to become rock stars or, or rich and famous, but because that's what they do. That's yeah. what they do, whether they make $5 or $5 million, you know. Sure. And uh, so I'm a bad relaxer. My wife and I are the same, you know, we both love what we do, and, and you know, the idea of lying on the beach for two weeks is just like, holy crap, could there <laughs> any, be anything more boring? Um, what's fun is to be with a like-minded group of people. I mean, the Nixon show, which just aired on Sky and is going to go to the United States soon, was this little series that I did about the, the, con- the really crazy conversations in the Nixon White House tapes 
and, and done verbatim as, as if you were watching video of those actual moments. Uh, and I can't, can't stress highly enough what a, what a thrill it was to work with this, just this like-minded group of people, both cast and crew, who got the idea of, no, we're going to do it real. We're going to do it. Everything has got to be exactly right. And there wasn't an argument, and there wasn't a, ah, nobody will notice, and who's going to know? And who yeah. the, It was just, they, they twigged to the adventure of getting it right. I mean, the last scene in the last episode is the seven minutes before he delivers his resignation speech on television. And so there are two cameras sitting in the Oval Office to televise the speech. And I call up a friend of mine who's at CBS in Washington and say, what were those cameras? And he finds out and says, well, these were Norelco 280Zs or whatever they were. And the, the, my team finds the one guy in England who has two of them that still work <laughs> and fly him down to London and they, they work so you can see the picture through the yeah. viewfinder. And, you know, that to me that's thrilling, that to be embarked on a project where everybody kind of gets the idea and and views it as a as a fun adventure to do. Yeah, and it is unusual, I think, in the I mean not not t- totally unusual, but in show business a lot of people are just going, let's get this out as cheaply as we can yeah. and as no, quickly I mean, as we can and as thoughtlessly as we can. All of Spinal Tap was was us raging not raging, but sort of ragging at people about, you know, um, there's a scene where uh, Michael McKean and I uh, uh, David and, and Derek are backstage and we're about to go on stage without Nigel. And we say in the in the notes, the stage directions, and the stage backstage is like full of typical backstage graffiti. Yeah. And we get to the set and it looks like, you know, East Los Angeles gang graffiti on the motorway. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. it's just these huge le- bulbous letters like gang gang letter. And we say, no, 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 no. Go to the troubadour. Here, we'll, we'll send you up to the troubadour. Go backstage. Look at what rock and roll graffiti looks like backstage. And the guy just sort of slumps his shoulders, <laughs> walks away, and then comes back and does it right. Yeah. And that's what it takes. You know, that's that's the stubbornness we were talking about yeah. before. Yeah. Well, that's how you make something that be, that lives on. <laughs> Hopefully, long, yeah. than, uh, In this quite ephemeral uh, business, uh, there, there was another thing I want to talk to you about. Again, this comes from Adam Newman. Thank you, Adam, uh, for this. But. Um, that you are one of the few people who has seen um, the uh, film... Day, the Day the Clown Cried. The, the Day the Clown Cried, uh, Jerry Lewis's possibly ill-judged film about, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> about the Holocaust. No, every, every bit accurately judged. Jerry Lewis, <laughs> just having celebrated his 88th birthday, um, Jerry made this film. This was supposed to be his first serious film. It's a movie about a clown in a concentration camp. (laughs) You're laughing already. Um, And it is just so achingly bad. Yeah. Um, I I had a- How did you get to say it? Because he's he's not loud. It's never been released. He's never been loud. It it was a a rough cut was liberated for a weekend uh, by a friend and uh, I didn't get to make a copy of it. So I can't sell it to you tonight. (laughs) Um, And I I remember uh, having described it once as a a painting of the Holocaust as done by a a guy in Tijuana painting on black velvet. you know, just lacrimose and sentimental and mawkish and just all the wrong notes played. And he has now admitted that it was a, a very ill-conceived venture. And, yeah. Uh, for years, he, he 
would not say those words, and uh, but he's now admitted that this was a bad idea. Yeah. A bad idea gone wrong. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting though. I did watch a little document. What we just saying? There was a little. There's a little documentary about it on the on yes. the internet, like an eight it's, minute. It's a piece. making of. Yeah. So there's a little tiny piece of it, but he's taking it all very, very, very seriously. In the same way as you're talking about Spinal Tap, he's, he's like going, "Oh, they're going, oh, you, you put on the makeup exactly the same, everything. Yeah, yeah." And he's being very serious. Yes. About it. But then he, so it doesn't work. Just being fastidious and stubborn doesn't necessarily. It, no, that's not the whole. That's not the whole <laughs> secret. Um, he. He famously uh, wrote a book in the 70s uh, called The Total Filmmaker, which was when he was at the height of his self-regard about his work uh, as, a, as a director. Um, and I think that's, that's, that was the impulse that led him to do uh, yeah. The Day the Clown Cried. But I mean, it is a perfect piece. If I say Jerry Lewis does a movie about a clown on a concentration camp, you can't imagine a film worse than what it actually is. <laughs> And would it be something you could spoof? Because it's sort of the, the, no. the, make, the making of the. Could you spoof the making of that film? Because it, it. Again, I was just watching and thinking him taking him going, well, yeah, we always play music in the back. It was very spinal happy in the, in the documentary. He goes, we play, we play music, we have a record in the background as the actors are working so they can play off this record, which I would have thought would be the worst possible thing you could, as an actor, to be trying to emote music. And then he says, I take that to the composer and say, do something a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh look, you know, the, the, the thing that I think has been the common thread in, from Spinal Tap through all of the Christopher Guest movies has been uh, people who take themselves too seriously. Yeah. And uh, whether it's folk artists in, in Mighty Wind or, or second-rate movie actors in, in For Your Consideration or dog owners in, in uh, Best in Show. Um, so if not that specific style of... Uh, or that specific movie, yeah, the making of a terrible movie by somebody who thinks he's four times the filmmaker that he really is yeah. is a perfectly good idea for a spoof. Uh, I'm going to do it. Don't any of you do it. <laughs> that is our idea. No one can take it. And also, this is quite, an, I don't know if this is obscure or not, but your voice is in the original Star Wars film. You'd like in everything. Your voice, you do a voice of some of the, of the, Darth Vader's guards, can't remember what they're called, that's how bad it's got. Uh, but you, you, were, the, you were at Comic-Con dressed as one of them. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's when I was really poor and right. I was doing, you know, whatever voiceover work came along in movies. There was this group of uh, people, uh, comic actors who couldn't get work and we were all grouped together and, and hired to do basically anything from crowds to voices on TV to the characters in the background or, or you know, guys in Star Wars. I just remember seeing, they wouldn't show me the script, but they showed me this eight-page uh, precy of right. the first film, and I just went, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone did, didn't they? I think God. <laughs> Guinness did as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. So you, you, don't, you, didn't, you weren't voicing over as you were watching it, so you didn't see, you just had to do voices without watching the footage. I know what it was. I think we did do it to a picture, okay. yeah. 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 Yeah, unlike The Simpsons, where we do our voices first and then they animate to us, uh. which is so we're the guide for the how the the animated characters actually act. Sure. Any lawyers listening? <laughs> That's an important point. Great. Well, you've played a lot of presidents. I just was looking. You played Nixon, but you also played uh, George Bush in The Golden Girls. Do you remember that? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Okay. <laughs> You've also played George Bush in The Simpsons, I think. 
the oh, original yes. George Bush. I, and I played Bill Clinton, Clinton in The Simpsons. And Abraham Lincoln. Yes. And Hitler. Yes. I don't know if he was a president. He wasn't a president. He, wasn't, he was president. He was president of somebody else. And I played Ronald Reagan on, uh, uh, on my radio show and also on a, a special I did on HBO. Uh, do you think you could do every single president by the end of your career in some form? No, not every <laughs> single president. I think, you know, Buchanan and Pierce would elude me. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 because I, my radio show is, is basically a, a work of satire, I think my job in that is to do these guys who have uh, the power over Americans. And uh, the interesting thing I find is that um, with some exceptions. I mean, George W. Bush was sort of a sitting duck, as was Reagan. I knew Reagan because he'd been governor of California, and Nixon had been uh, all over California before he got to the presidency. But a lot of these guys come out of nowhere. Um, the, the best way to become president of the United States is to not be a figure on the national scene, to come out of being governor of some hoo-ha state and go, I'm going to come and clean up Washington. And they never do, of course, but they get totally captured by it. They go native. And um, so it's hard in the early days to kind of get a, a grasp of them. But by the second, the beginning of the second term, man, I've got them. <laughs> it's really obvious who the fuck they are. And it's like, I'm, I'm going for it, you know. But you do, in, in the show and in other, I mean, I saw you here doing your Christmas shows here, which is a fantastic thing you do for Hurricane Katrina Against we do it the, for the um, New Orleans Musicians yeah, Clinic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, um, but you, you you are do quite hard hitting political satire on mm -hmm. those shows, which uh, is how, how do you how do you find um, doing that? How do you, do you find people are, are, are ready to hear you do that if they've come to you from elsewhere or? Do they... Oh, you know, I, um, I the good thing about doing this radio show is I don't have to have any concern about what people think. <laughs> It's, it's done totally for free. Yeah. Uh, I've done it for 30 years. Uh, it's done on these, this radio network in the States, which is not commercial. So uh, I've, I've never even inquired or been required to know what the ratings are or anything like that. Right. So I just do what I feel, you know. And, and um, as I say, um, you, you kind of, whether you, whether you have any kind of sense of against your better judgment uh, belief that a new guy may be better or not, uh, by the time they've been in for a couple of years, you know, oh, God, same <laughs> old shit. Um, and so um, that generates a certain kind of anger, yeah. and a lot of satirical humor comes best from anger. Yeah. You know, that's the best thing to channel. That's the best way to channel anger is just to, okay, all right now, <laughs> aiming at you. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's, um, it's interesting but, to have such a well to be to becoming lots of different styles of comedy and and you know you do serious things, you do serious music as well. It's I, mean, I find that very interesting because a lot of a lot of performers will focus in on one thing and then stick doing that one thing. Well, as I say, my my strategy was be a moving target. Yeah, it's harder to to aim at you. Yeah, it's been really fantastic talking to you. If I see you on the tube again, just. Go your own way. Shall I go my own way? <laughs> I, won't, I won't bother you. Uh, thank you very much to my fantastic guest, Harry Shearer, ladies and gentlemen. You have been listening to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Harry Shearer. That can't be right. 
Music by Pest. Thanks to Orange Mark at the British Comedy Guide, all the staff at the Leicester Square Theatre, and Chris Evans, not that one, or the one from The Avengers, or the one who's your mate, is the one from Wales. He likes eating seaweed, he loves it. It was produced by Ben Walker. It's a fuzz, go faster, stripe, and sky potato production. Hope you enjoyed that. Do head to www.gofasterstripe.com to pick up DVDs or series passes or to make a donation or a monthly donation to help us make more great internet content. We're relying on you. We need your tiny bit of money from you. If you all gave a little bit, we could do some amazing things and would give all that back out for you to listen to in your ears and watch with your eyes. Anyway, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.